My guest today is Andrew Copper. He's currently a systems engineer at Boeing and a physics lover. He has a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the University of Missouri, Columbia, Master of Science and PhD in Physics from Arizona State University. Please enjoy the show. Hello, Andrew. Hi. Let's start off with, um, I, was one, I was thinking about this conversation last night, and um, I would like to start off with the question, what do you think is the most beautiful idea in physics? The most what idea in physics? Beautiful. Uh, interesting. Um, hmm. You know, I'd probably say that the most uh, beautiful one would be dark matter, um, just because at least in the last several hundred years, it's the last, it's the most recent one I can think of where they really probably try to push poetry and like word usage to um, in, inspire interest from the community around them uh, in the science they were doing. Uh, and, you know, I, I, to me, an artwork or a piece of art from, a, from, from physics would be something that you want to share with your community. And so using these exciting words like machos and wimps um, to describe the materials that they were looking at really spoke to, you know, trying to get the community engaged and interested in what they were doing. So that'd probably be my answer. So can you just talk about what is dark matter and um, how is the research been to dark matter? Been, I understand that is, um, if, I, if I'm not wrong, um, like trying to find dark matter actually involves a huge level of engineering and a ton of money just to, you know, set out the systems or set out experiments. Uh, yeah, I can. Now, to be fair, just, just to warn you, this isn't my field, so there's definitely some things I might get wrong, but I'll try to talk in generalities since uh, it's not what I specialized in. But basically, dark matter is any form of matter that doesn't interact traditionally with light or doesn't produce light itself. Um, so you might say that planets are form, uh, not necessarily dark matter, but they're not light matter. Um, but like black holes are considered dark matter. Um, there's a, um, a lot of other things that have been proposed as dark matter, but it's not really clear. Um, basically it's just, you know, it's, what is the matter that we can't, um, uh, see interacting with light. So maybe I shouldn't say planets. Yeah. Like I said, this is, I'm a little <clears throat> rusty on this, but, um, kind of any kind of material that, uh, you can't traditionally measure with light. So like, um, uh, neutrinos almost never interact with, with, with light. So therefore it's considered dark matter. Um, and I think we still consider black holes, dark matter, um, simply because they capture light. Um, as for how we measure those things or what, why those experiments are so difficult to, to manage. Uh, well, once I think, I think people really underestimate how many things you measure with light really really underestimate that so so um can I just interrupt here and and sure. ask so when you talk about measuring with light can you give some examples um sure so um you know if you take a measurement so uh, people might want to take a speed measurement right so they, they throw a baseball and they want to see how fast it goes well there's a couple ways one way we do it is we bounce radar waves off of it um, and that's using light. So radar waves would be light, and you would use the Doppler effect from the from the the the, uh, the radar waves bouncing off to measure how much how fast the uh, the the baseball is moving at towards you. 
Uh, so that's one example. Another example would be, um, let's say you um, uh, do a slow-mo video. So, so you, you take the baseball and you put um, some painted stripes behind it on a back wall. And then you throw the, pa- the baseball past the painted stripes and you record um, light visibly to see when the, the baseball passes in front. So even though you may not think of it as a light measurement, it still requires light to do the measurement. So even on these simple scale experiments, this is very much something that that happens here. Um, uh, you know, uh, what what would be another example of this? Um, so more some of the more sensitive experiments that are done, like um, there was a there there are experiments done to detect gravitational waves or um, other things like that. And a lot of times those will require you to use a combination of mirrors and lasers to, to measure the difference in time between um, reflecting light waves of, of, from lasers. It's going to be the same thing. You're going to have the light waves uh, from the lasers being used as a time measurement uh, to try to figure out what's going on. So, so while some things are obvious, you know, you're using lasers or radar waves or something like that to do your measurement. There are other situations like the, the baseball with the painted back wall where you don't necessarily think about the fact that you're using light to do the measurement. And, and it's just, it's, it's in almost all of the traditional measurements we would do, especially measurements that we do that are off planet. So if we're trying to look at galaxies or black holes or planets or stars far away, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much the only information that we expect to have from them is light-based. Right. That this, I think that clarifies many things. Okay. Um, so then she said, I lost, I lost a train of thought with the dark matter. <laughs> so you're asking about dark matter. So, so, um, so, <laughs> Not to apologize. Uh, so, so light okay. is light, light, light is really important to how we measure things. So dark matter is both elusive, but it's important. So why did we even know it existed? Well, one of the things they would do is they would calculate the mass of uh, a galaxy or a universe that they were, or not a universe, um, uh, a star that they were measuring the rotation of the, so maybe say the solar system around that star or the galaxy's spin of itself. Um, and that, that, uh, that rotation was expected to be a certain speed. Uh, and so they would go by the light mass or the mass of the stars, because, uh, you know, by comparison to the mass of the stars, the mass of the planets is irrelevant. Um, and they would try to calculate what the speed of rotation of the, of the galaxy should be. And they found out that wasn't happening. There was a much fast, uh, a much greater mass, uh, rotation expectation they had, they expected these galaxies to be much heavier based on how fast they were spinning. Um, and because of that, they coined the phrase dark matter. And actually, I shouldn't say they. There's actually a very important scientist in this. Um, and thankfully, this is a virtual podcast, so I have a computer in front of me to Google it because shame on me. I can't remember the scientist. I believe she was one of the first female astrophysicists. Um to be recognized, uh, Vera Rubin, um, and her work pioneered the field of dark matter studies. Right. Um, I'm clearly out of my field here, so I'm going to try my best to ask questions and, and follow up questions. So um, oh, sure. if, the, if there's anything that you want to explain more, um, just just feel free to to go ahead. But um, first, the question that popped into my mind when when listening to all this is that, um, I mean, there, there were a few thoughts. The first thought was that my high school physics 
doesn't help me much for this conversation. Um, <laughs> and that's to be so, expected, so, I guess. Yeah. Okay, fair. So, 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 um, I'm gonna do my best to try to break it down to that level of understanding. But what I would say to people who are interested in this, but don't necessarily have the background, um, definitely look up Dr. Michio Kaku. Um, he's a very famous physicist uh, who works hard to introduce the subject material at a level that's comfortable for public audiences, um, which I definitely am a big supporter of. I, 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 I'm not the biggest fan of sometimes the way that we write our papers to be difficult to read. Um, so his work is something I'm definitely a big fan of. And, you know, we've had, we've had people like Richard Feynman say, you know, if I can't explain it well enough for a freshman in college to understand that I don't understand the material well enough. So, so I'll do my best to, to try to make it better on that explanation. Um, so what, uh, can you maybe pick a, a few things where you might've gotten stuck, stuck on like what, 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 uh, um, what, what maybe. So, so, so what I got stuck on wasn't the specifics, but, um, I, I think the best way for, for me to say is, is I like, like what I learned in high school was like electric um, fields and, uh, you know, <laughs> gravitation and, um, there's, there's some, uh, Heisenberg uncertainty uh, principle and, and things like that. And, uh -huh. um, I think maybe instead of trying to dive into this topic, so I'm just curious, um, how, how was your process of learning physics like? Um, because you, you pretty much uh, majored in physics as undergraduate. You took a master's and you took a PhD in physics. So I, I, I'm just curious how, how has that learning process been like for you? Because I'm quite interested in picking out physics myself. Um, I'm a computer science major. And um, but at the same time, I... I'm just curious what what has the track been like for you and along the way what are some ideas or some um concepts that um like fascinated you because you did research in like if I recall nuclear fusion in as as like an undergrad. And but when you went on to do your PhD, it was more of like um, a lot of things on a nano scale scale, if I got that right. So right. if you don't mind just sharing that high high level overview and I apologize if i'm not asking good questions <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm coming off from from perspective of an idiot i guess uh, i mean uh, yeah it's it's i mean you, you just gotta ask what you gotta ask i mean like th there's no way to do it but to ask them but um but i i think i think kind of what you're looking for is like what got me interested in it and like what um kind of what what uh sparked the curiosity and then like what what was my learning path through physics yeah would that be um, a good way to summarize yeah, sure. Okay, so so first off, I actually have to say, uh, my interest in physics actually started in high school. Um, uh, a teacher actually sought me out because of a good math score I got in a math competition um, and asked me if I wanted to take physics a year early. Uh, and he recognized that I like challenging myself and, and he was one of those teachers who just likes pushing students. So, so it was a very good relationship to drive me to be more interested in physics. And and so, you know, with that, with that relationship with that teacher, I developed into a person who, you know, really, really saw physics as the great challenge that would drive me into school. Once I got into school, um, the, those two years of high school that I spent learning physics um, really helped me to break through the, the, the sort of entry level classes um, where I found teachers who weren't very interested in teaching the students. And, you know, maybe who, who, you know, they're teaching you alongside 1500 engineers. So 
it's not exactly the most exciting moment for them. Once I got past those introductory classes, I got into some classes where the teachers were very passionate and very interested in what they were talking about and were very happy and excited to share it with us. Um, and then uh, among those teachers, I was able to find one um, who uh, actually let me do research in his lab. And so, you know, I got to work with a furnace that went up to 2,400 degrees Celsius on a small scale um, and that you could use um, very long timetables to grow crystals that would, through um, formation energies, eventually uh, orient into a single crystal grain that we could then grow for several centimeters of length. Um, and to give you scale on that, um, the majority of the time, if you talk about a big crystal, you're talking about micrometers, nanometers, not centimeters. So, so um, just out of curiosity, um, what is the purpose of growing such a big crystal then? Um, so first off, the, 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 the best reason to do it is to, do, to have an easy study of it. So um, uh, I don't know if you know anything about electrons or, or uh, light scattering or electron scattering or, or a neutron scattering, but there are ways that you can scatter light off of, um, off of an atom plane uh, and they'll all bounce in the same direction. And basically what that does for you is you can create an angle um, uh, you can measure the angle at which the light bounces off of these crystals and use it to figure out what the orientation of the crystal is, but also to figure out what type of crystal it is. So um, when you get something the size of like a four centimeter sample where it's all a, a single grain crystal in the same direction, you can use something even as large as a neutron um, to, to measure the uh, crystal planes and therefore the crystal type of your, of your material. Um, and it's just, it's a very simple experiment that gives you a lot of uh, information with very little data processing necessary. Some of the electron and um, light-based light reflection systems can require additional analysis and research. The neutron ones tend to give you a much simpler set of data, a much cleaner analysis uh, for use. Um, so, so generating the large crystal, that would be the main reason for it, uh, for the research that we were doing. Um, because we were trying to create something similar to a high temperature superconductor where we wanted to have anti-ferromagnetic and ferroelectric materials uh, behaving together to pretend perhaps, well, hopefully make something like a high temperature superconductor or maybe just make something else crazy that no one had seen before. Um, because when you mix these, these behaviors, um, you can get some really exciting results. So maybe I should explain that a little bit. Um, anti-ferromagnetics means that the material is has a tendency towards disrupting magnetic fields. So it, it, if you tried to magnetically align this material, it would have a tendency to resist that. Um, anti uh, or, or ferroelectric means that it is likely to align in such a way that the spin speeds uh, uh, give you an electric, uh, a, um, oof, I'm gonna have to check this one again. I want to make sure I say it right because sure, yeah, understanding it in my head it is yeah, uh, it creates a spontaneous electric polarization. So basically, it polarizes the material. So it's right. not quite the same as creating its own magnetic field, but it's creating its own electric uh, field orientation. So could I just interrupt here and ask about sure. the magnetic field? Um, I understand that there are different. Um, I mean, the Earth itself has a magnetic field, and um, and charge objects have their create their own magnetic field. So when we talk about magnetic field, is it where does the fuel come from? Uh, sure. So, so um, you know, we have this idea of a magnetic moment um, that is 
basically um, can come from a orientation of electron orbits or something else. Um, but basically, um, magnetism comes from uh, the movement of electrons or the movement of electric charge. Um, and so you want to, or you're going to form a magnetic field by causing those electric uh, electron movements to be lined up in a certain way. So um, one of the things that you'll see a lot of times is magnetic fields formed by things with one, uh, an odd number of valence electrons or, um, you know, special character is special characteristics um, that, that can create um, large magnetic moments within the, within the material that can also happen from, um, uh, from, from crystal structure orientations as well. So um, typically if you see something as a natural magnet, um, it's going to happen because of um, crystal structure or electron uh, orbits that create um, a, um, magnetic field orientation in a, in, a, in a similar direction. And since it happens at the um, atomic scale, it builds up into a macroscopic force. Okay. I think that's, that's a good explanation. I'm trying. I'm a little rusty. <laughs> no, 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 no. The, the issue with me, the issue is with me and not with you. The issue is that when, when I clarify definition, then then because I take out so much brain power um, trying to process it, then I'll be like, hmm, what was the thread that got me into this definition again? Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. So so I'll need your help in just pulling back to, to the original thread. Um, right. So, so what we were originally talking about was just kind of a uh, anti-ferroelectrics and ferromagnetics. So, um, you know, I'm creating these large crystals um, uh, in hopes of being able to do neutron scattering studies on them because I want to see if the material meshed well, because if I can get a uniform material, then I know it will be stable outside of a laboratory environment. So when we talk about outside of the laboratory environment, does that mean that you scale it outside for commercial purposes or? <laughs> well, that, that's, that's wishful thinking. If you ask me, I mean, there are definitely research groups at universities who can create startups and produce products, but for the majority, majority of the time, even experimental groups are usually several decades away from marketable uh, products. What we're looking for is just something that, that a new material that has an application. So let, like, let's say we were su super lucky um, and the material we created was 10 degrees um, higher temperature, but also um, superconducting. So now instead of having like 70, I think way back when we were doing this research, I think 70 Kelvin was the highest temperature that you could have a superconductor. Let's say that ours could do 80 Kelvin or 90 or 100 Kelvin. Then, you know. Uh, a group that wants a high temperature superconductor might look at our material and see if it's reasonable to be uh, forming this material on a large scale um, uh, to, to use in experiments or in products or in design like that. So uh, yeah, it's, it, it could be used in products eventually. And that that's the, to me, that was like the, the big reason to pursue science was to, to develop something that could be used in a market. Um, but uh yeah, it's 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 much further out than maybe most people imagine. I mean, I can I can kind of um understand that a little, I guess, because I'm in the field, like I did some research for computer science as well, and um, 
it's, it's terribly challenging. And even if you get a positive result, that may not be a huge increment or that may not be substantial enough for um, commercial purpose. So I'm just curious, um, from that, that lab work, how, how does that tie into your research paper on nuclear fusion as well? <laughs> it really doesn't. So what happened was, is I had a capstone project that I needed to do to graduate. And we were given a certain set of subjects we could choose from to graduate. Um, and well, you know, global warming and cl climate change being what they are, uh, I was really interested in the nuclear power side of things. Because, um, you know, at the at the time, at least I thought, I, I thought, like many do that nuclear fu fission was scary and dangerous. Um, so to me, nuclear fusion was an idea that I could get behind that I thought that maybe we could convince the rest of the world was a, 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 a good solution. Right. So, so I wanted to look so into to interrupt it. You, um, can uh, you just briefly talk about nuclear fusion and nuclear fusion? Because I think that term can still be confusing for many people and, oh, okay. and what they also say with nuclear power. Okay. So, so nuclear fu fission already exists. That's that. That is a that is a well-defined technology, um, at least on the traditional sy systems that already are used in power plants today, um, where they take a large nucleus and they split it into two smaller nuclei. Okay, and that that generates power, but it also can generate a lot of waste products, and it can be uh, often the process that's used to generate power with the current war. Uh, the the the, cur the current nuclear power plants can be used to be making weapons as well. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, negativity around, uh, the, the, the process of nuclear fusion or fission. Um, and also there's also the risk of meltdowns and other issues. So with nuclear fusion, instead of taking a large nuclei and splitting it into two smaller ones, you take a very small nucleus, um, and you fuse it with another small nucleus, um, to make a slightly larger one. Um, and that also produces energy as long as your two starting nuclei are small, small enough, which usually we talk hydrogen or lithium as the largest uh, atoms that you might see in a, in a fusion reaction. Um, and it's, it's a lot safer with the way that the European company or uh, research community has been trying to design it. They're trying to design a steady state system. Um, but uh, basically... Um, there are a lot of pros to a nuclear fusion system if you can finish the figure out the research. Um, uh, we're trying to do it, but we're also trying to do it without doing it the way the sun does for obvious reasons. We're not the sun. We're not even close to that mass. We don't have the gravitational forces to force nuclei together. Um, but we're trying to find another way around where we can produce power while also fusing nuclei on a much smaller scale. So what are some um, common techniques that have been tried so far on trying to fuse those nuclei together on the smaller scale? Okay, so um, so the, the most common one has been a, a sort of uh, fluid fusion, a plasma fluid. Basically, you heat up the hydrogen so much that it, that it ionizes into just protons and electrons. Um, 
maybe a new, uh, actually they the, usually these are deuterium and tritium. So there's usually some neutrons attached to the protons as well. But basically you have a cloud of electrons and a cloud of protons orbiting a magnetic center that's using electrical and magnetic fields to trap this material in a, in a vacuum. Um, and you try to heat it up more and more and more and more. And so this is, this is a tokamak form of fusion um, that uses um, these gravitational and electrical fields to hold this in place while they continue to heat it up more and more and more and more, um, getting it up to 100, degrees, uh, 100 million degrees Celsius, 200 million degrees Celsius. Um, but the way that, that the scientists describe it is they say it's like trying to hold a bowl of jello in place with a bunch of rubber bands. That's the level of effectiveness that they view their electric fields and magnetic fields in holding this material while they heat it up. Um, and it makes sense. Um, and it's a problem. So they've been trying to find different ways to fix this. And in recent years, um, they've proposed twisting the toroid shape. So the current toroid shape, toroid kind of looks like a donut. Um, what they've tried is suggested doing. So imagine like a twisty donut, but it's still in a circular shape. And this twisting allows you to combat the angular speed differential between the inner ring of plasma and the outer ring of plasma, um, how they're managing to get the magnets and the electric, magnetic and electric fields to work with all this is um, a little beyond the research, the homework I've done on my own. But basically, you know, that's 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 the steady state fusion. That's the 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 the, the one of the two methods I studied in, in college. Um, the second method um, is called is is basically pellet fusion. And so what you do is you prepare a um, very, very, very spherical pellet of hydrogen. And then you superheat it on all sides with lasers at the exact same time. And what happens is the thermal expansion of the surface of the hydrogen creates intense pressure on the inside of the pellet to the point where fusion begins to occur. And the goal there is to create a chain reaction runaway that consumes the entire pellet. So what sounds dangerous from a fission perspective is actually safe from a fusion pr perspective because before the reaction gets out of control, you run out of hydrogen and then you just dump another pellet in and repeat the process. Um, that is actually the, uh, the most common form of research that the United States was doing um, when I was uh, a college student uh, with, I think, Japan and uh, Europe focusing more on the tokamak form. There have been other forms of fusion, but some of them are not usable for, um, uh, for commercial production of electricity, such as tabletop fusion. Um, and there are other forms of fusion that I just simply did not study because they did not exist back when I was in college or... Um, because they weren't viewed as a viable solution. So the two main ones that were heading up the most, the closest thing to electrical production for um, for countries were the tokamak fusion and the pellet fusion. So I'm not sure if this is a good question, um, but I would like to ask, so um, from now and back when you were doing your capstone research on this, has your view on what's the right way to approach nuclear fusion change? Uh, what's the right way to approach nuclear fusion? What? Uh, have you has your thought on what's the right way to approach nuclear fusion change in any way? Oh, um, 
it, yes and no. I mean, first off, so the, remember when I described the donut twisting, that was not a technique that existed when I was in, in college. So it was very much traditional donut shape, um, just a circular, uh, circular cross section to the donut. Um, and that was creating all sorts of problems because they kept losing plasma that would just crash into the wall and cool off and wasn't, it was just wasting tons of energy. So this, this twisting, um, uh, solution is one thing that's been proposed. Um, I know, uh, do you know who Lockheed Martin is? I love the name. Um, to be honest, it's, it's a defense contractor in the United States. They make planes and Navy and Navy ships and stuff like right, that. Right. Okay. They also have a project and I don't know how active it still is. Let me look, uh, LM fusion. Um, so they have a project where they're trying to take the tokamak idea or something similar to it, but make it the size of a semi, like, like the, the whole reactor could fit in a semi tractor trailer, uh, to put this in comparison, they took a picture of somebody standing in one of these tokamaks, um, like these little panels that look like they might be four or five inches long in the screen were larger than a whole human being. And I mean, like this panels, there were hundreds of them to reach the top of the tokamak, um, Let's see. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess this is an audio only thing, but I'm just 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 to just to give you an idea. It's it's hundreds of of, of uh, feet tall and wide. Um, you know, this is this is like a, a a small sports stadium in size for the Tokamak. And Lockheed Martin, they're not necessarily releasing releasing all of the ideas behind their design or anything like that. They're obviously looking for. Uh, sponsors for their idea, but they are su suggesting that within the next several years, they would be able to um, create a fusion uh, reaction device the size of a semi-tractor trailer. Uh, and I think if they are successful, they could change the world. So, um, but but as, as to which one's leading, I would still say the Tokamak. The Tokamak design seems to be leading. It's struggling to get fusion to happen um, because of the fact that it needs to create a steady state system that can consistently produce it. Um, and it has to reach high enough temperatures. Um, but while the pellet fusion system has already created fusion, there's an upper limit theoretically to how much electricity they can produce out of it. So the only way to make that, that method, uh, produce a net gain of electricity for their community is, uh, to optimize the process that's already in place and burn up more of the fuel. And so they have their own set of restrictions and, um, difficulties in creating, uh, a commercially viable source of electricity. So I just want to get a sense of the scale of this, um, let's just say that, um, these ideas a few of them take off and and they work in commercial settings then what is what is the scale of the the plants for example i think right now uh nuclear fission plants are pretty big and there's a lot of um safety measures involved and there's a lot of uh, waste material generator and so you have to be very careful and need all of that but um, will fusion be more efficient so uh fusion probably won't be more efficient to start with in the sense of um uh, cost and things because it, the, the, their their attempts to even make this stuff it's it's you know that research has to be paid back somewhere and maybe that p research will be completely covered by government grants it is right now 
Um, but once this starts getting interesting enough for the commercial market, they are going to start investing. And eventually that will be coming out of the, the people's pockets who, who enjoy that, that electrical source. Um, but in the sense of, um, in the sense of uh, of advantages over f uh, f fission, um, certainly uh, there's a several answers I can give here. One is that it's safer. Um, it, there is going to be radioactive waste from nuclear fusion, but we're talking about waste that will be radioactive for 100 years. Um, in some cases, there are plans with some of the ways they've been trying to design the reactor to actually have it sit on site for 100 years and then just recycle it with whatever uh, walls they take out next. So just to kind of have a rotating set of, of walls that are reused as the radiation uh, wears off. Um, that, that's one discussion in place. Um, but your main products are not going to be radioactive. So you're going to have some byproducts that are radioactive, basically the, radi uh, the, the, the reactor's walls but everything else should be relatively safe versus with fission. While we are doing a better job of containing nuclear waste and are learning a lot from the mistakes of our past, although some of those seem to be more related to nuclear weapons than nuclear fission, uh, fission power plants, um, there's there certainly is a lot more waste involved in that. Um, and yes, the half-lives can be much, much longer and uh, much more troubling. Um, however, I would still say that the, the pros outweigh the cons, you know, especially if you look at somebody like France, uh, who is able to successfully use and even recycle the nuclear uh, waste of other people's power plants to produce their own nuclear power. Um, I think that there are great examples of how to use nuclear fission safely. It's just, you know, which what, what do you talk about in the news, right? Do you talk about the, the reactors that work fine and, you know, are safe, or do you talk about the one where a tidal wave and earthquake and everything else came at it and it was should have been decommissioned already or upgraded to greater safety standards so <laughs> we know which one makes the news and, and there's good reason for it because people got hurt so right so i'm just um i'm just curious then um we talk about how like global warming was a motivation for you to do research in this topic and i'm just curious of all those forms of sustainable energy um which one will you bet on to be the most promising well so it, it it's kind of a pros and cons thing so you know let me ask you this what or, or or ask a uh a loaded question here um why is natural gas like one of the most common power plants going up so it, there's a there's a youtube channel called real engineering uh and he gives them great detail about how the 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 return on investment for governments, especially elected governments, um, the return on investment for a nuclear or a, a, a natural gas power plant is one year. Um, and the, the return on investment for a nuclear power plant is six years. So that's that's the time it takes for you to start making money off of your original investment. And, and so why is this a problem? Well, it, it means it's a, a higher investment and it's harder to do with election cycles. Um, but especially um, but oh, okay, but why is it important? So we don't have a lot of renewable sources that can ramp up quickly or match demand as it reaches the grid. 
So the current forms of electrical power generation that can react quickly to demand are coal power plants, natural gas power plants, and hydroelectric power plants. And I'm specifically speaking of dams. I don't think that um, tidal generators or some of the other hydroelectric power supplies have the ability to ramp up and down as well. So, the, so um, when we talk about renewable energy resources, I thought of nuclear as being one of the best solutions because it's a baseline power supply. It constantly produces a certain amount of, of power uh, 24-7. Um, and it can ramp up, just not quickly. So it wouldn't be good for like a daytime surge, but it would be good for a, a city's growth over the years. Um, so, well, why, why is that important? Well, because solar and wind are very environmentally conscious materials or, or power supplies, but they're very uncontrolled. They're not, they don't respond to um, a, a good baseline or, they, they, or they don't have a good baseline of power and they don't respond to demand. They more respond to whenever the power comes in. So, you know, is it a windy day? Is it not? Is it sunny outside? Is it not? You know, that's when you get power from those. And so unless you have a huge storage system for electricity, those power supplies can be undependable. If you don't have any electricity, they're great. But if you specifically are a society that depends on electricity, then you need something that can meet demand. Um, and I thought of nuclear as a better solution on the renewable side of thing, things because um, dams can be troublesome for uh, a wildlife. And um, the other two solutions, natural gas and coal, are much more damaging to the environment. So creating a higher baseline for the grid seemed like the best solution with uh, solar and, and wind being awesome bonuses, but with no real good strategy for storing the amount of power that they produce, especially when the amount of power they produce does not m match the time at which the power is demanded. Right. Um, so, so to summarize, I guess it means something like you need a combination of a few sources. And because um, we can somewhat control nuclear energy, as I mean, if we implement it, we can control it. And that is good for uh, meeting as a source of like meeting um the basic energy needs when right. for example solar and, and wind are just like not very agreeable on that day oh, right or or say it's a really hot day but it's it's cloudy out you know and then so you've got your solar panels aren't producing enough electricity uh for the high level demand of say los angeles everybody turning their air conditioning on at the same time so you have this huge power surge and the only way that you know to deal with it is either going to be if you have a huge battery somewhere that can ramp up output to match this or a coal plant or a, um, a natural gas plant or maybe a neighbor, a neighboring state that isn't using all of its electricity. You know, you, you've your grid options there. There may be many of them, but the ones that are the most likely to respond to demand are the most likely to contribute to global warming. So um, I'm okay. I'm just curious when you talk about large battery systems, and we have, for example, Tesla who gets the press for like their power wall. Is that battery in every household sufficient, or we actually need more industrial scale battery systems? So um, 
Well, let's let's talk about that. So first off, chemical batteries aren't as friendly to the environment as you might think. You know, is is uh, there there have been many things that have shown that it's actually better to keep your your used vehicle around than to buy a new Tesla if you're just trying to help the environment. If you need to get a new car, that's different. You know, that's that's a need. But if you're just doing it because you're like trying to show your concern about the environment actually keeping your used car if it's still working is the better solution so you know there, there's costs to production and things like that that maybe aren't always considered and especially with chemical batteries but when you go to the industrial scale you can move beyond a chemical battery to say a water reservoir or some other mech- mechanism uh, mechanical battery style storage of energy even if it's just like the equivalent of a roller coaster where you push the weights up a hill at night and then during the daytime, you let the weights fall back downhill to generate electricity. There are things you can do at scale with a sort of battery um, that is mechanical that you can't do um, in a house. And so when, when you when you talk about a house, yeah, Tesla's battery is going to be the choice uh, choice to be made. Um, I just don't think that it scales well uh, in cost, uh, in production cost, or in um, environmental impact. Um, and it, I think that you can kind of see that by how businesses invest. So Google for some time was actually looking into, uh, battery storage and things like that on an industrial scale. And one of the things that really seemed to invest in, at least at the time that I was looking into this was fuel cells. So they would use fuel cells to try to run, um, systems and fuel cells actually can be. Uh, one of the forms of chemical battery that's very, or chemical energy sources that's actually very, very efficient and friendly. Um, the issue with it is um, uh, chemical reaction time. Uh, the only known catalyst, the only well-known catalyst for fuel cells is platinum. Uh, and platinum is not a material that is easily used on a mass producible scale. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's a bit surprising in the sense that because recently I'm, I'm just doing this sustainability module in school and it's like an intro, you know, freshman level. That, that's just part of a school requirement, course requirement. And um, I kind of suggest that, oh, like every resident should buy their own um, house battery and just, just to store the energy from solar because in Singapore, it's always sunny and it's always hot. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, okay. But right. But 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 for for the environment that you live in, that makes a lot of sense, right? But you know, um, I, say you live in Iowa, you know, it might make more sense to strap a windmill on your house. Or let's say you live in New York, where it's you know not very sunny all year. Or maybe let's say Seattle. So Seattle, Washington. You know, you're you're in the rainy city, so you're expecting it to rain most of the year. So it's it's it, where where does the Tesla solution make sense? Probably in California, you know, probably in Arizona places where it's arid and where um, you really get those high temperatures, uh, but also those sunny days, day in and day out. Mm, so. I, I want to take a tangent because you talk about how um, different products have different ROI and that affects, I suppose, governments and politicians' um, decisions to make certain choices. So uh-huh. um, I'm just curious that there's two questions here. The first is that, so do you feel that anything about election cycles in particular should be changed. And the second is, um, I'm just very curious as Singaporean, uh, I was following the US presidential election. I know it has been uh-huh. harped on a lot, but I just want to get a sense of perspective. I mean, your perspective on how things are 
and how do you think the country will be moving forward? Okay. Um, so, so first off, um, let's try to address the elections issue. So, would a longer election cycle help? Um, you know, maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. Um, it might. It might be more important just to get more, uh, a more bipartisan support behind it. You know, if both parties agree that this is a good decision, it might be easier to get that move forward. I honestly. In, in America, I know it's more complicated because one of the two parties really isn't behind the whole um, uh, climate change uh, movement. Um, but even places like Germany really weren't investing in nuclear power. Um, and, and because it's because it's not friendly. So, so you have the the one party that says that, cl you know, climate change, is it even real? They ask, you know, that they, they, they have a very skeptical viewpoint of it. But then you have the other party who is very, very afraid of nuclear nuclear power because they see it as, you know, they, they see all of the damage it does. They don't necessarily see um, uh, the benefits of it. Um, and they don't necessarily see that we don't necessarily have a better option. So to give an example, Germany is actually producing more pollution than it was before. Um, and it's, its electricity costs more than it used to because they decommissioned a number of their nuclear power plants. And in order to meet demand that the solar and wind couldn't keep up with, they switched back to coal. Um, maybe a, a more modern coal plant, so it's still a better production facility than if they had built it 40 years ago, but it was still coal um, or natural gas. Um, as for politics... Um, well, I get a step on all the landmines now. So uh, I, I've been doing a bit of research on this too, because it is very important to this country and kind of where we're going to be going from here. Um, my my own personal perspective is that um, the <laughs> election results aren't going to change based on any of the court um, court decisions or any of the court accusations. Um, we will probably have Biden as our president. Um, and it is going to take us in a new direction. Um, and one of the things that has been sponsored by a lot of the Democrats um, who are going to be in a greater uh, leading role in the coming years is going to be uh, the Green New Deal, which did talk a lot about trying to cut out all um, carbon positive uh, power supplies or, or power sources by 2035. I don't think that that's feasible with just solar wind and maybe a little bit of hydro, um, but that is what the plan calls for. And I'm guessing that in the same way that a manager t uh, has an idea and tells his employees to figure it out, the Democrats have an idea and they're gonna tell the engineers and scientists to figure it out. So they're going to do everything they can to use the maximum amount of solar, wind and hydro to make this solution a reality uh, it's just my feeling that they're going to have to rely on nuclear if they actually want to achieve it. So I just want to bring that question a bit more general as well. Um, okay. Not just from a en an energy perspective, but also from from as an outsider, my sense is that the country is so fragmented, and people have their own biases, like like what you say that one party is still skeptical about the science of global warming. Which which feels pretty weird to me. Um, it's as though I don't know whether it's a drastic um analogy, but it's kind of like adopting you know like basic, uh maybe two plus five or seven. I mean it's not quite as strong, but but why do you feel that one party still is still skeptical, and the other party is like 
how do you actually get people to move in the same direction for the next four years or for the next decade? Okay, so um, well, first off, I think that you know, with with the way that the elect- elections have gone, it's it's not necessarily going to require bipartisan agreement in order to move forward. So, you know, um, at least on the side of the political power. Um, it's going to be in the hands of those who believe in global warming and who are going to act on it. As to how, in a more general sense, we unify and stop having this division, I think it's going to take a huge change in the way that we present things because, you know, there's just this huge divide in what, what we say needs to happen. You know, there's we let people with the most extreme ideas represent both sides. So you have, you know, somebody saying that we need to turn off all TVs and turn off all electricity and turn off all turn off everything in order to save the planet. And, and you hear these people or rather a, a conservative hears these people and thinks that this is what uh, people who believe in global warming want to happen. Um, and, and then you hear the other side of it, which is, you know, uh, the Democrats perspective of, you know, uh, we just, uh, the, the, the conservatives just, all they care about is money is all they care about business successfulness. So they will, you know, they will, they will burn every last drop of oil on the planet in the next four years, if they have to, to turn a profit, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's this, there's this fear that the other side is going to move so drastically that they must be stopped. There, there can be no compromise. There can be no discussion. There can be no, no uh, movement forward. And as long as that's the 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 that 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 I you know I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. As long as that cowardly perspective of fear is more important, what I'm afraid of is more important. Um, we can't move forward because you know, if if we compromise on those two extreme policies, you actually get probably what the majority of people were aiming for in the first place, which is, you know, be more conservative with your electricity demands, be more conservative, think about whether or not what you're doing is using your electricity wisely, but also at the same time, explore, you know, what, what, what power supplies can we use? What, what, what power plants can we use that are, that are better for the environment? So do you feel Um, that, that whole, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the whole okay. um, you mentioned fear is kind of used to push the agenda. Do you feel that it's something that's rewarded by the system or by the incentive structures in the existing um, environment? Or I think it, it has a lot of pushes. So there are some people who, you know, their um, th- their paycheck comes in every day because of the fear they push. You know, if you think about it, it's 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 not necessarily meant to be an incentivized structure. But um, there are a lot of place. There are a lot of people who have a choice on what material to present, and they're going to present the material in the scariest way possible. You know, in the in the way that the is, is the most fearful to somebody else because it makes them uh, makes people tune into them. So so yeah. So there are people who are going to present material to the public in a way that 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 scares people into giving them more money and and. And 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 the 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 you know the, the 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 companies who are supported by this are not going to help either. You know, if if somebody is a coal or an oil plant, um, you 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 need to look to see are they contributing to the fear or are they contributing to the solution? You know, some some um, some power utility companies will contribute to the fear 
and they'll, they'll, you know, oh, oh my goodness, if everybody uses solar in this state, they're going to overload the grid. You need to start charging them so that they don't destroy our grid that we've worked so hard to keep in place. You know, I, w- I wouldn't see that as anything but a fear, a fear-based uh, way of speaking. But then you see other coal plants who are saying, hey, we recognize that our community recognizes this as the wave of the future. And we want to stay in, co- we, we want to continue to produce power for the, our communities because that's something that has value to us. So you'll see, I think it was uh, West Virginia had some uh, uh, power, power utility companies that were investing in solar and investing in wind and trying to start to move their stuff away. So, you know, it's, there's a, there's a a bunch of different people who have power to gain or money to gain from, uh, from, from encouraging the fear. Politicians can gain money or can gain power and and also money, um, from, from, from stimulating fear. Uh, um, a company who stands to gain more profit from keeping their business the way it is can also stimulate fear. Um, and a media source that recognizes that um, turmoil or chaos or fear brings in more views might be inclined towards reporting in that direction um, because it produces more more views, more ad revenue, more uh, more sensationalism that uh, continues to bring the money in. So what you propose is the solution to all this because, um, I mean, like what you said, that it, like different agents have their own incentives. And I think it, it's almost gullible to say, oh, um, these people should just know better, <laughs> right? So, I mean, how, how would you fix the system if, if you're given like complete power for I don't know, two months? Well, yeah, I guess I guess I would say first off, if I knew the solution and I was able to implement it correctly, I probably wouldn't be a scientist. I'd probably be a millionaire, billionaire, or trillionaire because the person who solves this problem, even if they're not doing it for money, will probably end up very rich. Um, but uh, I think that it, it, it may not be a problem that we can solve um, with a business or a, a solution. It might be a problem that requires almost an education system change in mind thought. Like, you know, do we, do we need to say, you know, do we, do we need to like in America specifically, should we be educating students uh, to think more critically for themselves, to judge material that's presented to them before accepting it as truth? You know, these, uh, the, the education system that's currently designed in America actually often calls for students to believe things without without criticizing it and and that that can be a situation where those people so so in my perspective every single one of these things the politicians um the media who is dishonest and does not have integrity i will say that that is not all media i'm just saying it exists um but the politicians the media and the companies who play off of people's fears are able to do so because people do not do the back the the homework. You know, you see you see something scary on Facebook, and I'm not going to say I've never done this, but you see something scary on Facebook and you share it with everybody else. You know, and and maybe you've got a really smart friend with you who really checks you up on things and things like that, and 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 looks to see if what you said is factual. But if you don't, then it just gets shared again and again and again. And so that inability to um, uh, take information that's given to you and check the validity of it 
to to really to really criti- critically think about what um, is being presented towards you seems to be missing. You know, is it, or you know, having the time of the day to do it. You know, because I know people who can think critically, but they they don't. They just take everything at face value because they don't have enough time in the day. So so yeah. So there might need to be a huge mental shift just in how we approach news and information. Um, we, we've been in the information age since at least the 1980s. Um, now it's kind of, some people joke that it's the misinformation age. Um, but if it is the misinformation age, then we need to start learning how to judge the information in front of us. Um, how, how do you go about um, cultivating the sense of critical thinking in people? So um, one of the things that I like to do as a teacher um, back when I was a teaching assistant and a tutor uh, for a few, uh, for 15 years or so, you try to teach by the Socratic method. So anytime a student is looking for a direct answer for you, how do I do this? You try to lead them to come to the conclusion without giving them an answer. You know, you try to, you try to lead them in on that. Um, And anytime a student tells you how to do something, you ask them why they told you how to do it that way. So if a student says, you know, uh, turn off that sink, you're wasting water. You ask them why, you know, oh, well, because it's this. Okay. Well, if they don't have the ability to answer the reason why you take, take away the water, you ask them to question it. And you're not saying you don't want them to be environmentally conscious. You want them to be environmentally conscious. You just also want them to understand why they told you to do it. You know, uh, um, my uh, a family member of mine uh, was um, doing a walkout for a school for a demonstration, and she was doing it because it was cool, because it was hip, because it was fun. And I said, "Do you realize what you're doing? You know, did you think about what you're protesting? Do you agree with what you're protesting?" And she was told a very high level reason for why it was protested but she didn't question it. So I, I talked to her and I said, Hey, why don't you do a little homework on it? You know, just, just encourage critical thinking. And I think that's what we have to do is we have to say, Hey, look into it, see if what you're protesting is what you think about. And she asked, you know, why is this even important? You know, I I'm against the things that, that we're protesting. Does it matter if, if I know the details or know what I'm doing, shouldn't I just be able to take action? And we said, absolutely, you should just be able to take action. But I think that it's better for you to know why and to recognize what you're doing. Because you, as a, as a protester, you have some awesome power that you can give to people. But that power you give to people, you should, you should recognize what power you're giving them. You know, is the power you're giving them good? Is the power you're giving them bad? Is, you know, are you, are you, are, are are the words that you're giving by protesting the words that you think you are, or is somebody putting words in your mouth that you don't actually support? Um, and I think all these little things can, can add up to a huge change in the level of critical, critical thinking that people exercise. Right. Um, but do you feel that it's something that's scalable on a large scale? Uh, say that again, sorry. So do, I think I agree with you, but okay. I think the issue is also that um, in some sense, you're kind of in, this is something that is an initiative that has to be kind of bottom up as opposed to top down. 
yeah, I think I think it has to be taught from from day one in the schools, um, and so that is difficult. Um, but I also think uh, I, I think you said something about skills. Um, I think that that could be an issue too. It is difficult once you have to try to uh, understand an opinion that that exceeds your knowledge. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't make a, a decision there or a rationale. Um, it just means that you might have to rely on experts or someone else more for information. Um, so and, and speaking to that specifically, so when you say top down or bottom up, what do you mean? Right. So for example, some um, policies can be just top down as in like in Singapore, we have this by law, we are supposed to wear masks during this pandemic right and we act actively have like um uh we call them safe distancing ambassadors so they go around like kind of catching people who don't mm -hmm. wear their mask properly so this is a top-down approach that that can be implemented when we talk about cultivating oh, the sense like of a grassroots support yeah so, cultivating the sense of um uh, curiosity and the sense of questioning that's not something you can just all day say you, you, you guys need to start you know questioning things it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right <laughs> so, so yeah so yeah in, in, a, in a wonderful unicorn and fairies and rainbows world um uh you could absolutely bottom down would be the best way to teach everything but it's not realistic you're right um i think so um maybe you, you just, might start so yeah. so i might actually have a i might actually have a suggestion here if you wanted a top top down approach that would actually be possible to implement you might start by taking the whistleblower program from six years ago actually more than that and making it serious reward people for whistleblowing start having people celebrated and what Oh, sorry. Something else. Um, uh, you re if you reward people for whistleblowing, um, then you start to create an environment where people realize that it's important to uh, look up, pay attention, and see if something bad is going on. Um, and by creating an environment where whistleblowers feel safe to report on 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 failures and bad behaviors, uh, like at company levels, you can start to create this environment where you show. Um, you know, on, on a, on a consistent level, you know, here are ways that this is happening. You know, here, here, are, here are ways that we have told people what to do and they're not following it or following orders or, or paying attention. You know, here's, here is a company that told you that it is going to make the greatest commitment it can to the protecting the environment. Um, and then had the whistle blown on it for intentionally, you know, say creating additional e-waste um, because it was more profitable to their company. But but right now we punish those people for for coming out and speaking about these things. If we were, you know, promoted it, we could start to, from a top-down perspective, turn the tide on critical thinking and um, uh, that kind of behavior. And then on a on a on a more individualistic scale, you know, it's like how how can you get people to to maybe say invest in in, in face masks more? Uh, you have to have more transparency. You know, uh, I think that um, the, the the previous presidential administration did a terrible job when it openly lied about um, the effectiveness of face masks um, because they wanted to uh, keep the limited production. 
for people who needed it more. You know, the, 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 the surgeons and the hospitals and the nurses were not able to get their hands on face masks um, because the, uh, the greater public was, was buying them as quickly as they could. And the greater public had a larger, a larger budget to work with, so to speak, than what the hospitals did. So rather than, you know, openly have a discussion or even, and I mean, I, I, I don't like saying this because I don't particularly trust it, uh, you know, uh, having the government buy them up uh, to distribute them. Um, rather than doing that, the, the, the decision was made to lie to the public about um, the, the effectiveness of face masks in order to, um, in order to keep the production or the supply uh, more available to hospital workers, and so when you get those those situations where, you know, you're 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 told to believe, not to not to question, uh, <laughs> and and then you're shown that the person isn't being transparent, you know, people start to question things. So so you definitely got the critical thinking, but it may have come to the wrong conclusion because of your dishonesty. <laughs> and, and in a weird way, I I, I didn't really think about where this conversation was leading when I started it, but now I'm seeing that I might be saying that. That we, we, we trained uh, uh, anti-maskers to be anti-maskers by lying to them about masks. <laughs> but but the, the, the critical thinking is still happening. It's just coming to the wrong conclusion. So. So um, I'm just going to. <laughs> I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to take it that direction. It's kind no, of where no, it went. No, it's fine. But uh, in, a, in a way, it's kind of tied, I suppose, to your current job as a systems engineer. This does does that does your job involve overseeing how different components and processes interact with each other or uh, yeah certainly to some degrees yes so I, I will say that the systems engineering field is a very very broad world but um in a in a um at least on the part of the job that i can speak to the most you know i interface with the customer um and I communicate with the customer and make sure that the customer is open. We are openly as transparent with the customer about whether or not our product meets what they want. You know, I, I you know, we, we go back and forth. I say to them, Hey, you asked it to be um, this durable. Okay. Here's our study showing it's this durable. Okay. You asked us to make sure that it's um, able to work under these temperature ranges. Okay, here's the temperature ranges we tested it under, uh, and the device still started up fine, and its internal diagnostics showed no problems. You know, we, we have this ability, um, uh, or, or we have this task in, in front of us to make sure the customer is satisfied and also to um, work with the engineers on the back end to make sure that they're communicating effectively any holdups or issues or problems, but also to communicate um, any successes or ways that they've improved the process and things like that. So yeah, so I get a very big uh, forest forest perspective of it, um, which is very helpful in kind of seeing those processes and seeing um, how one set of actions leads to another. If you don't mind me asking um, this question, why the pivot from a more scientific research to a more, I suppose, commercial and more customer-facing role? Okay, so actually this one's a really fun one. So, so we did talk a little bit about how in experimental fields, it might be a decade or more before you see that go to the market, even if everything in your experiment goes perfectly. Um, uh, when I went to grad school, I went into something even more abstract. I went into 
uh, ab initio simulations. So ab initio, kind of a Latin for from the beginning, we would take nanostructures of materials and simulate them to see if they would make good semiconductors for solar panels or good semiconductors for um, uh, semiconductor or uh, sorry, good semiconductors for LEDs or for maybe something else. Um, but when we said, is this a good conductor or a good semiconductor for an LED, literally all we are doing is looking at the band gap. You know, if I insert electricity into this or, or voltage or um, however you want to explain it, energy into the system, what photons will be emitted by the system? And so those photons or that color of light that comes out, um, we could predict with the band gap. And um, that's what we would do. So I would, I, would, I would make nanowires in a computer, in a computer simulation, um, and then see what light they would emit. And if the light wave, the light wavelength they emit, emitted, which also is usually the light, wing, light wavelength they absorbed, um, was close to a good wavelength, it could be a good material for a solar panel. If it was a good wavelength for red light, it could be a red laser. If it was a, or a, a red LED. Um, if it was a good color wavelength for a blue light, it could be a blue LED. Um, and so what would the process be then? So the process would be then, we would pass our information on and, and we would publish it. And then uh, an experimentalist who liked our work would try to see if he could make those nanowires the way that we described them. Once they were able to make those nanowires the way we described them, then they would have to um, uh, check the materials to make sure they actually behave the way that our simulations predicted. If that is successful, then they had to find a way to mass produce it or somebody else has to come along and find a way to mass produce it. If they can find a way to mass produce it, and it's still profitable, then you start seeing maybe a startup or an investment, uh, a company who makes LEDs interested in this nanowire. And this whole process can take 50 or 60 years to do. So um, at least from the research side of things, I wanted to get into a field where I might actually see something that I worked on, make it into somebody's hands uh, before I died, basically. <laughs> oh, you can leave long enough. So, so, you know, that's, that, that would be, that would be the reason I went into industry from research. The reason I went into industry from teaching is a little different. Oh, then do you, do you want to talk about that? I can a little bit. Uh, speaking of the whistleblower thing, I don't, you know, it's, it's not exactly safe to speak those opinions entirely, but basically um, I found that students were paying for an education that they weren't necessarily getting. So um, college is a great place to learn and have an environment where you can have uh, like-minded individuals who are all interested in learning and maybe finding new solutions to humanity's greatest problems. It's a great place with a lot of opportunities. I don't want to downplay that at all, but it's also a place of great debt and great misfortune. You know, people, people drop out, people fail to, to succeed, and they still walk away with $50,000 in debt or more. Um, it's also a, a place where you don't necessarily have to succeed to stay. Um, I, maybe I should put it this way. If, if your goal in life is to become a very smart person or to be very well educated, that is definitely still possible at a university. But if your goal in life is just to get good enough grades to get a degree, 
it might take less effort than you would imagine. And that lack of effort has to, I don't want to say what the cause and effect is, but it, it kind of, it's, it's detrimental to the integrity of the university. Basically there's, there's a reduction in expectations, a reduction in critical thinking, a reduction in performance that is still considered equivalent with what somebody would have to put in an effort 20, 30, 40 years ago. And um, the, the, the ways in which I saw the system breaking down, at least in the United States, um, I was uncomfortable with as a teacher and I felt powerless to do anything about. I did actually work within the university that I taught at to try to make changes that were positive for the university. Um, and to some degree I did have success, but there's also a lot of, a lot of moving parts and a lot of, of bureaucracy that you have to go through. Um, and some of the success that happened, I did not see while I was there. Um, but also I didn't see it as, I saw it as excessive. I didn't see, um, I, I saw the ability for students to get degrees without, um, producing a um uh, producing reason to believe that they should have those degrees um and they and they hurt the students as a whole you know instead of instead of you being able to get a degree and go up to a company and say hey i'm qualified for this you know here are my skills the, the company would come back and say, okay, cool. You said you have these skills. Um, where's your portfolio? You know, where's, where's your proof of this? Where's all this? You know, the, uni uh, the companies had learned that the, the universities were not necessarily giving skills. They were just giving degrees. Um, and so, you know, as a teacher, I, I, I want two things. I want students who want to learn and I want uh, a program that will support me and make sure that I believe that the students who succeed in their programs uh, are are as credible as um, as you would think they would be for, with that degree. You know, I don't I don't want somebody who who parties for four years. This is a little exaggerated, but like I don't want somebody who partied for four years and barely studied uh, to come out with an electrical engineering degree. You know, and I don't want them to have the same same marks and scores as somebody who you know worked, you know, sweated, you know, pers persevered, struggled all four years to get that same degree. So it's just, it's, it's, um, I didn't see, uh, I saw the opportunity for people to be educated, but I did not see, um, the rigors necessary to make sure that those who did not choose to educate themselves did not succeed. So what do you think of um, initiatives like Lambda School that try and circumvent this whole university system? <laughs> I've never heard of it. Can you tell me it again? Lambda, like L-A-M-B-D-A, like Lambda, like that, that math. Lambda School, okay. Oh, so like uh, like the boot camps? So what they do is the income sharing scheme plus a boot camp. So they actually employ, uh, they don't employ, but they, they teach students but the students don't have to pay unless the students get a job upon graduation. But the company will take a certain amount. And, and there are, of course, flaws within the execution. But the general idea is this is a general idea. 
Um, I think that for, um, uh, for, for people who are just looking to get a job out of a college degree, I think that's fantastic. I think that holding your, uh, a school that holds itself accountable to the uh, degrees that it offers as a form of employment is a fantastic thing. However, I don't know if you're familiar with Brett Weinstein. Um, he, he has his own podcast on YouTube. Course, where he, right? Oh, you are? Okay. I haven't listened oh, yeah, to it right? because I, I follow Eric. <laughs> so I yeah, can okay. hear Brett a little, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he actually answered one of my questions about K through 12 and he reminded me of something very important. We don't want employment to be the only reason people get educated. So yes, I definitely think that is an awesome thing. And I definitely think it would be a great branch for people who are just looking for education uh, to employ themselves. Um, but I also do recognize the value of a university for going above and beyond uh, the simple short-sighted goal of finding something profitable. Um, so yes and no. <laughs> I think Lambda schools are awesome, but I think they are a component of our education system. I don't think they can be the only uh, or one of the only higher education sources for people. Um, so, so, right. So I think I'll end this conversation with two questions. Um, don't take up too much of the time. Um, so okay. I just want to end on a positive note. So these are the two questions. Um, the first is how should people cultivate a, a love of learning? I suppose within themselves or like within their kids, I guess, or within their peers, if that's possible. And the second is that for people who, uh, part of the reason why I did this podcast was that, you know, I kind of talked to many interesting people and and I just, I just felt that if someone in another country does not have these opportunities, then they can at least, you know, listen to this podcast. So so how, how do you recommend people go about learning for example, the, the subject that you love the most, physics. Okay, so yeah, so so um, so it, so first off, we'll go about how do you cultivate a love of learning. So first off, um, I think a big part of it for me, at least, has been challenging myself, learning to love challenging myself, learning to, you know, fight the evolutionary desire to minimize the amount of work your brain does. Think about your brain like a muscle. You know, for people who love to work out, for us, it needs to be loving to work our brains out. You know, we, we need to, to, to mentally focus ourselves on how can I um, change my mindset such that I desire to learn or desire to, to, to know more than I did yesterday. And, and, and also to, to, to have that goal be realistic, you know, is, is I, I, I want to know more than I did yesterday, not I want to be a physicist tomorrow. Um, I think, I think that's, the best way to cultivate learning, but also to try to find what excites you in learning, you know, is, is, you know, what am I excited about? Am I excited about physics? Okay. Then I learn about physics. Am I excited about engineering? Then I learn about engineering, you know, am I excited about, um, art history? Cool. Then I look up art history. You know, it's, it's, you want to, you want to try to find the things that inspire you and then learn to grow in your knowledge of it. And, and you can find that even things like art, will have a physical basis behind them. You will find that even things like physics will sometimes have artistic pieces to them. So it's just, you know, you, you find the subject that you're the most interested in. And then if you really want to drive that, that, that knowledge that you love and you are interested in beyond where it is today, uh, one of the ways you can do that is by looking into other fields of, of learning as well. Um, and, and, you know, by, by finding that one thing you love to learn about, you actually might end up learning about many more things at the same time. Um, so that, I think that answers the love of learning question. The next question was, 
for people who this podcast is what they do have access to, um, there's a couple of assumptions I'm going to make. I'm going to assume that they have some level of internet connection. I'm going to assume that they have some way to view content or it, it, or maybe a little bit beyond just listening to it. Um, so with those assumptions in mind, my recommendation was to be to look at the free content. Remember what I said, I don't think universities are bad. And I do think that there is a wonderful opportunity to learn at them if you are self-motivated. So what does that mean for somebody who doesn't have those opportunities, who can't be in the US or who can't you know, afford a college education in the traditional sense? Well, you still have those opportunities to learn. You just have to work harder yourself and you have to motivate yourself. You know, um, an, an in-person education is really good for somebody who maybe isn't fully motivated about learning. But if you're motivated about learning yourself, you know, there's the world of YouTube. There are wonderful people who, you know, uh, through their passion for learning or, or just because they like sharing with other people will give you the opportunity to learn even full university classes uh, freely through YouTube. So MIT is one of those schools that does this. Um, there are a number of other schools that also offer um, free courses in physics and other materials, um, maybe at a little bit of a high level, um, but that's something to start with. Um, something else I would recommend is if you have a public library nearby, um, you can definitely get yourself up to the level at which um, you could be comfortable um, listening to the MIT lectures. Um, I know that when I was in high school, our physics teacher would use a publicly available, I think on YouTube as well, um, list of videos um, from various scientists who would share the, their, their, their experience and knowledge um, in video formats. Um, be warned though, if you're used to high definition and high quality audio, a lot of these are from old VCR uh, tapes. Um, but anyways, you know, there, there's a ton of free information and op opportunities out there. You just have to t have the time and the desire and passion to go look for it. Um, and in most communities that have the translations available, um, actually the US is one of the most expensive places to get textbooks. So um, I would definitely look at uh, trying to find textbooks in your own language. You know, some, some, some professors are actually wonderful teachers who are truly passionate and inspired and are able to teach things. But typically when you work, go to a university, you're not really choosing your professor. So what happens when you get a professor who just reads out of the textbook? Well, you read the textbook and well, if your attendance isn't required, you may not even go to class because you recognize that you're not getting anything more out of it than the teacher repeating what the textbook already says. So for students who don't have the opportunity to go to the university in the first place, the textbook is definitely something I would recommend. You know, it's 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 a good place to start. Um, and you can find communities and make communities that will be able to discuss the textbook um, if that if that shared interest is there. You know, there's a there's a real engineering discord. Um, and I know that people just go in there and will ask questions to us about engineering homework that they have or about engineering concepts that they're interested in. And there are other people like myself um, who will work to um, answer those questions because we find the curiosity and the engagement exciting and interesting. You know, we, we, we look at this as this is our opportunity to share what's been taught to us. Um, and what has been given to us. So th there are many ways to learn this material. 
uh, without access to the university. Like I said, it just, it requires a greater um, effort and discipline on your part. Um, much in the same way that, you know, a doctor can help you um, with an injury in your shoulder. Um, but if you have the discipline and ability, once the doctor has te- taught you what exercises you need to do, you can do it yourself. Just depends. It just depends. <laughs> Good okay, answer. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's the way you end it. You're like, yeah, it just depends. <laughs> But, yeah, right. Well, I mean, I'm just saying, like, I, I have to be honest. You know, sometimes I'm not the most motivated learner. So sometimes having that in-person class really helps. And there are harder situations where, you know, having the ability to play with uh, high-level physics tools really does make a difference. So... I'm trying to think of situations where that's not the case. Right, right. This, this is a very fair um, consideration. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and thanks for sharing your knowledge. And I'm sorry that I couldn't, <laughs> I'm not well-versed enough in the physics to, to ask questions on that topic. No worries. Uh, if, 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 if the, the only complaint I would even have is just that you couldn't catch when I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so... Oh shit. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> oh no, no worries. I'm just saying, like, because I, yeah, I, I no. it's so. Um, no, but there's such a there's such a perspective of of a teacher. You know, it's like, it's like you're lecturing me, but you're like, dude, this 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 person can't can't correct me. Yeah. Well, yeah. We actually, we, uh, I had well, some of my favorite teachers. One of them, he he offered me like a he offered the free pizza party if the students corrected him more than six times correctly. Um, and his whole point in doing that was like, he's like, yeah, I don't make a lot of money as a teacher, but I want you to tell me when I make a mistake. You're not just telling me; you're telling all of my students. So yeah, it, it's 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 a good integrity thing. You know, you don't want to. Besides making us uh, 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 making yourself look silly, you also don't want to uh, teach people the wrong thing. So, right? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic suggestion of pizza party. I, I'm going to use that in my daily life from now on. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. No problem. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, as this will help people to find the show. In addition, please do share this episode with one to three friends whom you think will enjoy as well. Thank you.